This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Eva Patsova, Democratic candidate for Congress in Arizona's first. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Of course. So you are primarying a Democratic incumbent. You've announced well over a year before the primary will even occur. Why is that? Well, uh, I believe that um, we need uh, actually as many candidates as we can get to uh, run in all elections, including in primaries. Uh, I think uh, we have to start putting people first in our policies and in our policy making and politics. And uh, I feel I'm well prepared to play that role and uh, I'm uh, ready to fight for uh, the people not only in my district, uh, in Arizona District 1, but also for all Arizonans and, in fact, for all Americans. And obviously, if you thought your incumbent was doing a good enough job, you wouldn't be running this campaign. What is wrong with your incumbent and why would you be a better Congress member? So maybe I can summarize the difference um, or our differences um, this way. Uh, you know, the incumbent wants to expand the Medicare to include hearing aids for elderly. And I want to expand Medicare to cover all Americans. And I think that's the fundamental difference in uh, how we see the role of uh, government and uh, policy making. You know, I really think it's time that uh, our country offers the kind of uh, programs and benefits that provide uh, essentially just basics to uh, everyday Americans. We need, you know, tuition-free college. Uh, we need a bold climate action. We need to uh, lift up uh, voices of people who have been silent for too long. We need to protect women's reproductive rights and, and uh, be champion of those rights. We need to overhaul our immigration system. And I think this is the time for um, bold politics and for bold policymaking. In regards to Medicare for All, we've recently seen some top Democratic presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, waffle on what exactly that means for progressives, for single-payer advocates. It means completely eliminating the private market. But for these Democrats, that is not the case. What's your perspective on this? You know, what I hear from people and, you know, it's people in my own community, but also elsewhere, is that health care is not affordable. And the, the bills that people have to pay when they encounter a medical crisis are extremely high and they put their entire financial future at risk. And so, uh, but, but we do have a, a 
single payer type of system already, but it's only available for a uh, part of the population. So, you know, our uh, retirees have access to Medicare and we need to expand that kind of system um, to cover all and uh, for government to have the ability to negotiate prices with uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I think there's something wrong with the uh, with our current uh, uh, system if uh, we pay twice as much as uh, people in other uh, developed countries for their health care and our uh, health outcomes are worse. And do you believe we need to eliminate the private market entirely? I don't, I don't necessarily think that it has to be either or in a, a most uh, systems around the world. Uh, people have options, but everybody can be covered uh, by uh, you know, government-sponsored plan. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, you know, in my world, healthcare is a right. And, uh, you know, profiting from, uh, you know, healthcare, uh, you know, that should not be the only way, uh, we deliver healthcare. And, uh, I, I, I think it's time for the Americans to enjoy the kind of policies that Western Europe, uh, has enjoyed for decades and decades. And you do have experience on, the Flagstaff City Council. Uh, what was that experience and how does it, what about it makes you well-suited for Congress? So, so I spent four years on uh, the Flagstaff City Council, which is, Flagstaff is a, a college town in Arizona. And I think it's uh, important to, you know, to understand the basics of uh, policymaking and the, you know, the basics of uh, how uh, procedures uh, work and of course, they work slightly different at different levels of government. But I think what's important um, is to know that um, I will fight for the people. Um, I was behind two campaigns in Flagstaff. One was uh, uh, a local citizen initiative that raised uh, the local minimum wage to $15 and uh, eventually City Council amended it to $15.50. And then I ran a second campaign to protect uh, that minimum wage from uh, the corporate uh, attempt to repeal it. Um, and so, and this is the kind of fight that I'm uh, willing to uh, take on when, uh, you know, when I will be in Congress. I don't know if uh, you know, the listeners know, but Flagstaff, Arizona has the highest minimum wage in the entire country by ordinance or initiative uh, on paper. It's 1550 by 2022. And uh, because of this campaign, we were able to raise the sub-minimum tipped wage to the full minimum wage. Um, and that provision then uh, policy will be phased in by 2026. But this, will, this is the only place in the entire country, the only jurisdiction it was able to successfully do it and protect it. Um, in the last 30 years, there are seven other states that currently have uh, what is referred to as one fair wage. Uh, but but I, what I'm essentially offering to voters and everybody in the country, because, you know, obviously I'm not going to just uh, 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 
work on policies for Arizonans, but for entire, uh, whether they're young or old, but for all Americans, is um, the focus and um, the courage and integrity. Uh, and we need more of that in the Congress. And beyond the minimum wage, what is your economic justice platform? Well, as I mentioned, and I feel like this is part of the uh, economic justice platform, is uh, uh, you know, passing the kind of policies that lead, lead to tuition-free college. I don't believe that the young people here in this country should be starting their lives with the burden of college debt. I think it's super important. Um, you know, I, when it comes to uh, workplace justice, I feel that we need to, uh, you know, oftentimes we talk about, uh, oh, we need to create, uh, you know, better paying jobs. You know, but the truth is that we make uh, jobs better paying by demanding uh, higher wages and better working conditions. And we uh, allow uh, workers, employees to unionize and to be you know to be able to uh, bargain for better contracts. Um, I I certainly think that uh, it's uh, high time for uh, bold proposals like the Green New Deal and and, and that proposal has uh, an economic aspect. Obviously, uh, you know, we can uh, address uh, the challenges of climate change and at the same time. Uh, create the kind of economy that leads to good green jobs. A proposal the Sunrise Movement has been pushing very strongly is a green job guarantee. Is that something you support? Uh, I will be. Uh, I would be lying if I said that I know the details of all the proposals. But I, you know, I, I really think that we do have to change the way uh, we generate uh, energy, and there's uh, obviously plenty of opportunities there. In terms of uh, uh, you know the policy bringing uh, new in, you know new jobs that are based on green economy, um, I, I think there's a great opportunity in uh, reinvesting in our infrastructure and actually turning our infrastructure in uh, the kind of um, uh, system where uh, we are uh, working towards uh, you know, transportation that's not dependent on fossil fuels. And, and there are opportunities there. Um, I think, you know, our transportation is very outdated, our system. And, um, and, and, but, but the truth is that uh, regardless of what kind of, um, you know, ultimately what kind of uh, deal is negotiated among all the uh, political actors, uh, it has to be significant, large-scale, and bold. I mean, at this point, uh, cities are taking lead when it comes to climate action. Uh, one of the uh, items that I'm really proud of um, uh, from my tenure on the Flagstaff City Council was that we passed uh, our first climate action plan as the only Arizona city. And you would think that in Arizona, where we have so much sunshine, um, we would be leaders in uh, uh, renewable energy generation uh, and distribution.
what is your criminal justice platform? Well, so I, I, I think we as a country um, started to make money of uh, our uh, prison system and our policies are uh, set up to drive more and more people to the prison system. And I think uh, that's wrong. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we need a big reform when it comes to our justice system. Uh, I think the, the whole idea of mandatory minimums is mis misled. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, we shouldn't have people in prison because they have mental issues and we shouldn't be sending uh, police officers to interact with people who need really either um, uh, help in terms of uh, social services or uh, help, help uh, you know, with taking care of their uh, uh, mental health needs. Um, and uh, and as we certainly we shouldn't uh, criminalize poverty, and we are doing that uh, uh, very much so. Uh, so I, you know, I I think we have a lot of work to do, and there are some um, you know, great uh, uh, tall leaders in this area. I just the other day I was talking to friends who um, you know are professors at the local university that are expert on the justice system and the kind of um, the kind of models where um, that lead to better societal outcomes uh, less recidivism fewer people in uh, um, in jails in um, you know safer, safer society so but i i guess the the whole you know we do have to uh, review why are we passing certain policies and laws? And, and I really believe that uh, there is intent to uh, drive more people to prisons because we have privatized uh, that area of um, you know, our, what I think should be public, publicly um, managed functions. And do you believe that we actually need prisons at all to implement justice? Wow, that's kind of a very philosophical, well, very philosophical question, and and I, 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 you know, like I, I think all countries have some kind of version of prison system, but they look very differently. I certainly think that in, uh, the approach to punishment um, in the, in the U.S. is uh, very harsh. Um, and even though this country you know, is, is full of opportunities and second chances, it does feel like we are um, not really willing to give second chances. And we don't always think that when people pay their debt to the society by serving time, um, we don't look at them as, um, you know, as uh, Reformed, recovered, or you know their behavior being corrected, and we continue to punish them. Um, the fact that you know people have hard time getting jobs when they get out of the prison, the, you know, there's a lot of laws that uh, a lot of practices in uh, our you know in HR of uh, um, whether they're private or public uh, entities that actually. Uh, make it harder for people to get jobs. So, um, 
I, I, I can, uh, I can, uh, I can see a society where we think about um, punishment differently, and uh, we try to correct behavior um, in a way that benefits all people. Uh, you know, obviously, the society that was harmed, but also people who caused the harm. We know that, you know, often time. Uh, it's the victims who end up victimizing and so their deep roots in, uh, in behavior that's um, unacceptable and harmful to society. So I, you know, I, I think it's a very long answer to a short question, uh, but I can see that, you know, we could uh, be taking steps toward um, a more, more, um, restorative justice type of um, society. And I'm not expert on, on this policy, but I, I certainly see huge opportunity and, um, and I think we can be better by having, uh, at minimum, our prisons should not be privatized. They absolutely should be uh, paid, not just paid, but also managed by the public sector. And you mentioned decriminalizing poverty. What exactly does that mean? So, so I, I think at different level of uh, policy making, you have different level of criminalization of uh, poverty. So, you know, we uh, and, and I can just talk about maybe a local example from Flagstaff, Arizona, but you know, there are local examples all over the country. You know, uh, we have a local ordinance that uh, essentially Criminal, criminalizes people for sleeping outside. And people who sleep outside are typically people who, uh, for whatever reason, lost their shelter. And, uh, and I don't think that's uh, a policy that uh, has place in a um, you know, just, generous, and inclusive society. Um, you know, we, we criminalize um, uh, people who are, you know, immigrants and maybe they lost their uh, legal status or maybe they uh, whatever reason but we they end up um, living in the shadows of the society because of uh, lack of other uh, options um, so I you know I, I think we are not we, we have a lot of work to do in this area and, um, and providing basics to people so, so, so they, they don't have to live in poverty. Um, you know, their healthcare needs are taken care of. You know, if they cannot, uh, hold the job because of, um, you know, issues they may have either with mental health or, you know, all kinds of physical health, right? Then, uh, we should take care of those members of our society. We are a very wealthy nation. We are incredibly wealthy. It's just the wealth is uh, distributed so unequally that, um, you know, we also are a country with incredibly deep, deeply rooted poverty. And obviously, income inequality is one of the biggest issues of our time. Recently, we've seen some top Democrats talk about how taxation can be used to rectify that. 
Bernie Sanders wants to restore the 77% tax on billionaires' estates. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to restore a 70% marginal tax rate of income over $10 million. Elizabeth Warren wants to implement an annual wealth tax. What does it mean to you for the wealthy to pay their fair share in taxes? I, I completely agree with those proposals. You know, I think uh, it's, uh, um, it's time that we talk about uh, um, uh, top marginal uh, tax rate. And we uh, go back to some of the practices that we used to have, uh, you know, in the past when uh, the people who were the most fortunate and they, uh, you know, made uh, not only very good living, but uh, certainly uh, living way above uh, what one needs or even what one generation needs, uh, they should be taxed. Uh, because ultimately, you know, none of these, um, none of these people who make this insane amount of money make the money because of their, uh, own work. I mean, it's all because th there is a, um, public infrastructure because of the labor of others, uh, because uh, the society provides uh, the kind of opportunities where, where the markets are functional. So, I do think it's just that we tax, you know, in that top uh, bracket, that we raise the taxes to that 70-person uh, level. Um, of course, money is also elsewhere. I mean, I, I think we have to start talking about uh, where the taxpayers' money go. And we all know that, I, and I'm not sure if I'm going to uh, misquote the figure, but I think 59% of uh, our federal taxes go to uh, defense. And that's a huge amount of money that could be going to other uh, needs and other functions uh, that our society has. Should we even live in a society where billionaires exist, where people have hoarded so much wealth while other people are starving and don't have these basic rights like healthcare and housing? You know, I, I think that's the, uh, the, the externality of, uh, uh, not quite free market, right? So, so I think that's what, uh, um, the, you know, this is what it leads to. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't see a need for a society to have billionaires. I don't know who needs this insane amount of money. Um, and, uh, you know, then you know, the wealth is just passed on, uh, their families and you know, generations and generations. Um, and so, you know, I personally don't, don't see a need for society to have members with that insane amount of wealth. Um, and this, and so, so that's, I guess I don't. I don't know who has who, who thinks that that's needed or that's good. That's welcome. Um, you know, people, all people have the same desires. They want to be uh, recognized. They want uh, have meaning in their lives. And uh, I frankly don't think that even these ultra rich are particularly uh happy just because uh you know their bank accounts are uh you know uh, so uh well endowed um so as a society as humans i don't think we need insane amount of wealth 
we need meaning in our lives and uh, different things, you know, different people uh, see different meaning in different uh, areas. Um, and, and we need, you know, some uh, basic, uh, our basic needs need to be taken care of. And uh, those basic needs, in my opinion, in the uh, society that, you know, exists in 2019 include uh, healthcare, education, you know, housing, uh, access to um, uh, food, good quality food. Um, and, you know, ability to pursue interests that um, make us uh, appreciate life. And in regards to defense spending, we hear some Democrats in Congress talk about how we spend too much, how we waste all this money waging war, yet they end up voting for the same exact defense budgets as the GOP. All of their talk is just that talk. They're not willing to vote their conscience. They're not willing to offer an alternative vision on foreign policy. What exactly should should defense spending rates be, and what is your foreign policy vision? Well, so so I hope that you know, 2018 was uh, the beginning of uh, a huge change in a way uh, how um, our Congress uh, operates and the kind of representatives um, that will get elected. And it's going to take, obviously, a critical mass of uh, uh, representatives to say that we're not going to approve the kind of budget that has, that essentially prioritizes um, uh, defense. And, you know, we call it defense, but that's not really uh, how the money is spent. It's not spent on defense. Um, and, and I think, I think our political uh, environment is changing and there I think there will be more and more uh, uh, courageous voices uh, there may be in minority at the beginning but that's how change happens there you know a few loud people who will say that you know I'm not going to vote for the, this budget I may agree with everything else but but it's it's super important that I voice my opposition because of um, you know, uh, defense spending and so so I think and I hope that voters will uh, give those of us who are willing to um, be loud and uh, speak clearly against uh, this unnecessary and wasteful. Um, and again, we have to just realize that this is just another economic sector, and it's you know I, I don't I don't believe that we should be engaged in uh, wars of choice where essentially the only interest is the economic interest, whether economic interest of uh, military contractors or economic interest um, because of the trade. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think we have to uh, kind of be very uh, reflective on uh, what, uh, you know, what we're doing overseas, but also to, to our own families, to our own people. Uh, who are sent to fight in wars, and uh, um, you know, then we fail to provide the basic services uh, that they need when they return. So I don't, I don't believe that we need uh, to spend spend eight hundred billion dollars 
uh, on defense budget. I certainly don't believe that we should be appropriating uh, $70 billion more than what uh, even the Pentagon asks for. I think that's completely inappropriate uh, and, and just inexcusable. Um, in a, in a, in a, frankly, you know, I, I think uh, I, <laughs> as I said, you know, I grew up before 1989 and I very much remember you know, the kind of uh, drills, uh, civil defense drills against, uh, you know, nuclear and chemical attacks and what kind of impact it has on children and, you know, the fear that um, the kind of uh, willingness to engage in a military conflict um, makes on, on the kids and, of course, you know, people. Uh, and so I, I you know, I, I, I think the experts would would say, oh, it's so complicated. And I know, I'm sure it's complicated because, you know, we are sometimes taking side and then, you know, we create, um, um, we create terror and then we're trying to fight it, uh, which, uh, in, you know, I, I, I just, I, I think, you know, peace is the way. There's no way to peace. Um, and, uh, and, and that's my perspective. I think the resources that we're spending, uh, overseas on contractors, um, are just could be spent, um, in a more productive way to benefit humanity. Um, obviously I, I don't think that killing people is a good policy. Something we're seeing Democrats largely silent on or even in support of is the coup that's happening in Venezuela right now. We recently saw a poll that showed almost 90% of Venezuelans do not support Juan Guaido, who the U.S. addressed as the legitimate president, even though his party did not run any candidate in the election. And the body he presides over, the National Assembly, has a 70% disapproval rating. And this is the man that the United States is saying is the legitimate leader of Venezuela. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, I think I think we should stay away from meddling in the, in the affairs that are uh, for Venezuelan people to resolve. Um, I, you know, clearly this is what we tend to do is to meddle in other countries' internal affairs, and uh, you know, obviously. Uh, there, there are some instances where, uh, you know, governments, uh, commit genocide and, and, you know, it is our moral duty to, uh, help people. But in this case, this is highly inappropriate. Um, and I, I really think that, uh, the U.S. should stay away from, uh, you know, what I feel is very much an internal affair for Venezuela to address. And, and uh, you know, we see it time after time. It is the people, um, you know, even when people deal with um, totalitarian regimes, the, the change has to come from within. You know, even when people have to deal, deal with uh, corruption, um, 
it's up to them to shape their country and their internal politics uh, as they see fit. And it's, you know, it's also hypocritical for, for us to be doing what we certainly don't like others uh, to do here in this country. A big point of hypocrisy we've seen mentioned is that the U.S. quite happily works with fascists, with oppressive leaders from Brazil to Saudi Arabia. How would you in Congress approach the United States' relations with these oppressive regimes, which are, I would say, entirely motivated by economic interests, especially oil? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I do think that we, you know, uh, should be uh, protecting uh, human rights everywhere. Um, and, and by protecting, I don't mean <laughs> protecting uh, with the military force, but I think we should be uh, using diplomacy um, to speak against uh, abuses of uh, human rights. Uh, and, I, and I think we should uh, be more careful with... Uh, uh, Pursuing our, you know, trade or economic interests, uh, while essentially, uh, exporting, uh, or, you know, supporting, um, totalitarian regimes elsewhere. I mean, if we truly believe in democracy, then, uh, you know, we should want to help people to realize their version of democracy. Um, and it is uh, hypocritical. I don't think we talk enough about uh, foreign affairs. Um, and, uh, you know, the news cycle has maybe a little bit about it, but I think people are largely unaware. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's, you know, also, you know, media's responsibility to kind of, keep pressure on our political elites. Um, you know, our political elites are too comfortable uh, helping the corporate interests. And um, perhaps if we can replace Congress with people who will, uh, you know, stand by and with the people and uh, will challenge this uh, unbridled corporate power, maybe we can also change the way we approach our um, foreign affairs and, uh, and become a little bit, you know, um, maybe uh, more humble in terms of uh, our uh, exports of uh, ideas and be more supportive of uh, people elsewhere who do want to uh, participate in uh, the politics of their own country and help them in a way that is not interfering um, you know, with, uh, with their decisions. And it's, I certainly disagree with the idea that we should be supporting one or another ca- candidate in another country. I mean, like I, I feel like in um, 2016, wasn't that the, the big issue? And, uh, you know, Russians were meddling in our politics. So I think, you know, it's uh, time to uh, look into the mirror. 
Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. One of the biggest economic tools, foreign policy tools we've seen America implement are economic sanctions. A big critique we've seen of that is that it starves the working people, the poor people, and it really doesn't affect those in power at all. What are your thoughts on sanctions? Yeah, I, I think uh, obviously, uh, you know, the powerful in uh, whatever country um will continue being powerful unless, you know, the, the people, uh, the voters and, uh, the people stand up against those interests. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think sanctions, just as you said, they, they, they don't tend to work <laughs> because they, you know, they create a hardship for the economy, but the, the, the powers are not particularly affected by it. Um, you know, sometimes it feels like uh, you're you're trying to, uh, you know, impact changes in other countries, but um, you're really harming harming people who live there, and they're not able to. Um, Access either the, the product or you know the, the the trade is affected negatively and um, so again I'm not expert on sanctions but I um, I believe that the they are not the most effective tool uh, to change um, politics. You you mentioned how the United States creates. So many problems in other countries creates refugees. What is your immigration platform? So I'm an immigrant. You can tell I grew up in Slovakia, and and uh, I uh, you know I don't have a sad story. I wasn't escaping a horrible situation, but the the idea that um, you know we should uh, the idea that we should create. Uh, Refugees that we actually contribute to that, that's very, um, troubling. And I think that, uh, when it comes to immigration, we should immediately 
create path for to citizenship for DACA recipients, and we should uh, create a path to uh, at least some legal status, if not to citizenship, for the 11 million uh, immigrants that um, work in uh, work in this country, that been in this country for very long time, that pay taxes, are contributing members of our society. And in fact, our businesses depend on them. Uh, if it wasn't for the businesses who employ them, um, they wouldn't be here. So we clearly, as a country, we do need uh, for our economy, you know, we need uh, workers, we need immigrants. And, uh, um, and I think it's, uh, it, it would be much safer for everybody and, uh, uh, and certainly, um, makes a, a much better policy to have immigrants with, uh, who, you know, have documentations and they can, uh, live outside of the shadows of the society. Um, they don't have to worry whether, uh, they're going to be, um, subjected to our to the immigration laws and the deportation procedure if they're um, victims of the crime they can you know collaborate and they can you know assist uh, police um, I, I think our communities would be much safer uh, and certainly you know when you have refugees who are seeking asylum I mean those are all legal um, ways to immigrate to this country and uh, we shouldn't create this portray of this portrait of uh, refugees as people who are entering country illegally if they're seeking asylum i mean that's a legal entry um i i'm very much opposed to the uh, uh, border wall there's no immigration crisis um it's a totally just a uh, political uh, game for uh, the current executive branch, um, and uh, and you know I, I guess I am part of this. Uh, I'm the person who believes that we should be opening up our countries, not closing it. I you know in 1989 we um, we knocked down the uh, walls and the iron curtains. And um, and I think everybody's better for that, um, both people in Eastern and certainly in Western Europe. And what do you think about abolishing ICE? Oh, let's abolish ICE. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's, you know, I, ICE is operating outside of uh, judicial branch. And uh, it, it's not so much that, um, you know, we don't need you know, some kind of agency that, uh, you know, enforces immigration law. Um, perhaps we need to, we, we need to definitely change our immigration law, but, but it certainly should not operate outside of the judicial branch. And currently ICE is a, in my opinion, a rogue agency. You know, the warrants that they are issuing are administrative warrants, not approved by judge. And, uh, I, you know, I think the, the kind of agency lost its, uh, credibility and, uh, you know, they're tearing families apart. Um, you know, I know here locally in Flagstaff that's happening. 
I know it's happening, you know, in uh, bigger cities, smaller cities. Um, these are our friends and neighbors. And uh, um, ICE is not uh, producing uh, the kind of uh, warrants that uh, they should be producing to when they want to arrest people. Looking at other civil rights issues, how are you going to be advocating for racial justice? So, so you know, to, I think the you know racial, economic, and social justice—they kind of, in my opinion, go hand in hand. Um, so, you know, for example, sometimes we talk about um, and gender justice. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about women's reproductive rights, but uh, it's really beyond. It, it's not. It's more than a women's issue, right? Because it's a it's a class issue. Uh, uh, so you know, people, women who are uh, you know doing well and maybe they're professionals, they can uh, take care of their uh, reproductive health needs uh, fine, just fine, because they have the resources. And so, but it's the it's it's the people who are oftentimes people of color and uh, uh, people who don't have the means, uh, you know. They, they need the kind of laws that we view as, uh, you know, whether it's uh, in the area of women's rights, uh, to protect them. So, so I, I think, I think the important part is that, uh, there is a great interconnectivity, uh, of these issues. And, uh, um, you know, it's one thing to create opportunities for people of color, women, you know, other marginalized groups. But I think we also have to uh, bring justice uh, to these communities. Um, here in the Flagstaff in northern Arizona, we have a you know, large population of uh, indigenous people. And, uh, you know, we have to stop having um, transactional relationship that are uh, whether it's indigenous people or um, you know people of color that come from other uh, racial groups, um, and we need to empower them uh, and uh, and make them partners in a uh, uh, policy making and in leading um, the change. And so, so that's I think the perspective is justice first, opportunity second. And, and I really think that's important uh, you know, for to so we can reshape uh, our society. Um, I think we should be very careful when we see uh, signs of racism, and we should be very loud to speak against uh, racism. Um, against xenophobia, against um, Islamophobia, against, you know, essentially intolerance. You know, speaking against is not enough, and we have to reflect that in our policies. Um, and uh, so, you know, one uh, policy that I wholeheartedly support is uh, one that was just introduced in Congress on January 16th in both the House and the Senate. And that's the Raise the Wage Act of 2019, which would raise the um, federal minimum wage um, to $15 by 2024, and it would also raise the subminimum tipped wage 
uh, to uh, full minimum wage. And, uh, you know, the fact that we still in this country, there are 18 states that pay $2.13 to tip workers, um, that's inexcusable. And uh, we know that the tip workers are mostly women, and a lot of them are people of color. So, so this is a very specific, concrete way how we can, um, uh, you know, bring more um, equity uh, into our society by raising um, the sub-minimum wage, not just the minimum wage, but the sub-minimum tipped wage. Um, and I, and I, and I think it's uh, it's critical to also understand that that sub-minimum tipped wage. Um, perpetuates uh, uh, the kind of workplace dynamics that leads to sexual harassment. And in fact, the, uh, the seven states that uh, have the full minimum wage for tip workers, uh, uh, they, their sexual harassment uh, uh, is cut in half in terms of a number of claims uh, to EEOC. So, and, and, you know, there are other, obviously, you know, this is just one example of uh, raising the minimum wage and how, how that is uh, especially important because the people who, you know, hold these jobs um, are employed in the lowest paid occupations in this country are uh, people of color, immigrants, you know, women. Do you support reparations for slavery? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and for that, and also for uh, the cultural genocide that we have uh, imposed on the indigenous people. Um, I, I just think that there comes time in our society where we have to say that, you know, we as a, a society and obviously representatives of government, you know, we did something horrible and wrong and we need to correct uh, the policies of the past generations. Um, and I fully support that. And I fully support it for especially these two uh, populations uh, that have been harmed and the harm persists. To say that we're, you know, this is a different world and, you know, it's not. The, the, the injustices of the past policies continue and, you know, obviously some of our policies are still very much unjust uh, um, when, they, when it comes to people of color. What advice would you give to other young people who are interested in running for office? They should not wait. Uh, oftentimes we are told, and, you know, I don't know how others, but I certainly was told um, you know, before I ran to city council, um, that, oh, maybe you should run, uh, and I was actually at the time, you know, five years ago, considering running for Congress, and I said, well, maybe you should run for a school board or for city council or, you know, spend eight years there, 12 years there, and wait your time. And uh, I would just say to every young person, no matter how young they are, if they have, uh, you know, the courage and they... Um, uh, have the support because it certainly is a, uh, you know, tough, uh, journey. But if they can, uh, to not wait and not to, um, you know, wait for permission because they will never get it and just go for it. Um, 
at the end of the day, you know, the better candidates or whoever are those candidates that are able to uh, get the message across and knock on more doors uh, will win. Uh, and I just want to encourage, and I want to encourage a lot of people who maybe are not thinking about, uh, you know, maybe they're thinking that, oh, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't know, I don't have enough experience with policies, I, I don't know, you know, it, it's it's more about values, in my opinion, than expertise in policies. None of us who, you know, served time on, a, on you know, any level of local government or whether it's state, local, you know, we're not experts, we don't have deep expertise in, a, um, you know, many policies because that's impossible. But it's the values that um, help us um, decide, uh, you know, what direction we should be heading. And, of course, you people will learn uh, and will get briefed and will, you know, research uh, different aspects of the policies to arrive, um, to, to make the best decision for the people. And so I, I'm rooting for everybody. I'm, uh, I'm 41 years old. And so I'm almost, you know, I'm, I'm almost middle age. I, I don't think of myself as middle age, but I guess I'm, I am, but I hope that you know, all the young people in their 20s and, and certainly, you know, all young people in 30s uh, will be running and we will have more diverse um, candidate pool and, um, and, and way more exciting uh, primaries. I think, you know, if America loves competition and I think we should have more competition uh, in our primaries and I think it's very going to be very healthy for for our communities. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today, and we hope to get you on in the future after you win the primary. Oh, thank you, Jordan, Valerie. I really enjoyed our conversation, um, and I enjoyed the, the very tough questions, but good questions. So thank you. Of course. And lastly, to our listeners, to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics Podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on social media and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.